Good morning. If you would go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. As you turn there, let me tell you about a, a class that I'm currently taking uh, for, for seminary. Uh, it's called Baptist History. Sounds, sounds pretty straightforward. It, it's title tells you what it is. It's, we're, we're studying the history of Baptists starting back uh, kind of at, their, at our origins. Uh, after the Reformation and during the English Separatist movement, we see uh, Baptist ideals begin to develop. Uh, of course, the main one being baptism, right? Baptism by immersion. Uh, believers' baptism, those kind of things. Uh, but as Baptists developed, and especially as they came to America, you know, the pilgrims, those kind of things, that was, that was all part of this English separatist movement. Uh, as they come to America, you see one thing that defines Baptists, one thing that separates Baptists from other denominations, more so than probably any other topic besides baptism, would be uh, church discipline. <coughs> church discipline. I've had a couple classes this semester that have that's gone through this. That I told you my Baptist history class, but also my theology class are walking through this same idea. We talk about uh, kind of this church formation, that kind of thing. Uh, so it's something that's been on my mind lately. Uh, I'm actually writing a paper about it for one of my other classes. Uh, but but studying that, you, you learn so much about how churches functioned back then. Um, they would even have these things called monthly conference meetings, where once a month on a Saturday, they would all get together and basically call each other out on their sin. I mean, it would be just as simple as that. They'd say, and especially if it was a sin against someone particular, so they'd say, you know, so-and-so has lied about me, or so-and-so has done this thing to me. Um, and then the church would, would vote, and they would act on it and uh, enact church discipline. I mean, could you imagine if we did that, if we gathered together on a Saturday once a month and called out people, and not necessarily about that kind of thing, or if you say, I saw so-and-so down at the bar this weekend. I mean, could you imagine what would happen if we did something like that? It wouldn't go over well for one. Um, but the goal wasn't just to call someone out. The goal wasn't just to embarrass someone. The goal was to restore them. It sounds harsh to, to, to call someone out like that in a conference meeting in public in front of the church. It sounds harsh. And maybe it wasn't the, the best way to go about it, but the goal wasn't to embarrass. The goal wasn't to um, simply to call them out. The goal was to restore them. The goal was to call them to repentance. And most times it was successful. And I imagine also it was kind of preventative. I mean, if you knew that, that you were going to be um, you know, called out in a, in a conference meeting, you would be less likely to do things that you know you shouldn't do, especially in public. And so I mean, my point in this is not that I'm advocating for this, this older type of church discipline. My point is that I think we see something similar happen to David here in 2 Samuel. Not church discipline, we see God disciplining David. We see a consequence uh, from what David does. Uh, and, and the goal isn't... God's not trying to, to, to spite David. God's not trying to hurt David. The goal is restoration. The goal is repentance. The goal is to draw David back to himself. So as you read, as we read here in 2 Samuel chapter 12, listen for that. Listen for, for the, and it's going to be right off the bat, listen to see what God does, and then look and see what David's response is. 
We see it in the very first two sentences. But so notice that as we as we go. What does God do? And then what is David's response? So let's let's read. We're going to read all the way through the rest of the chapter, starting in verse uh, the, the second half of verse fifteen, where the paragraph begins. David's child dies. Let's read there. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house, and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servant said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and you ate food. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her. And she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. And Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah. Moreover, I have taken the city of waters. Now then gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called by my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. And he took the crown of their king from his head the weight of it was a talent of gold, and then it was a precious stone, and it was placed on David's head. And he brought out, of the spool, out the spoil of the city a very great amount, and he brought out the people who were in it, and set them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes, and made them toil at the brick kilns. And thus he did to all the cities of the Ammonites. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for your word. I pray that you would help us to, to hear it rightly, dear God. I pray that you would help me to speak uh, clearly as I try to uh, preach through it, dear God. I pray that your spirit would uh, be alive in this place and, and work in us, dear God. I always need to pray in your gracious and holy name. Amen. So as you read, you might have noticed uh, that the, the rest of this chapter, uh, what we're going through, is separated into three different paragraphs, three rather large, well, two large and one small paragraph. And you see that the section titles there, uh, if y'all are like mine, go something like this. David's Child Dies. That's the first section title, the first paragraph title. The second one, if y'all are like mine, says Solomon's Birth. And lastly, Rabbah is 
captured. What makes these titles interesting is that uh, what we can see as, as we read them, that these are fulfillments of promises that God had made to David. Each of these events is, in a way, a fulfillment of God's promises to David. So as we go through, I think that'll be the best way for us to break this chapter down, is to break it down by these three events, these three uh, fulfillments of promises. So the first is a very uncomfortable promise. It's a promise to David that his child will die. It's the fulfillment of that promise, rather. So if you were here last week, you remember this, this declaration from God to David through Nathan is a consequence for David's sin. You see that in verse 13 and 14. So just, just look back right there. It should be on the same page or page before. Verse 13 and 14, this is Nathan speaking to David on behalf of God. David responds and says, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. And then verse 14, Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. That's the, that's the declaration. That's, that's the promise, so to speak. And we see this begin to unfold very quickly. The next verse, even, where we started today, And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. One thing I, I notice in that first verse that kind of stands out to me is the way the author describes Bathsheba. He doesn't call her Bathsheba. He doesn't call her David's wife. He calls her Uriah's wife. It's interesting because at this point we do know her by name. We already know that she is Bathsheba. And she is now David's wife, but he calls her Uriah's wife. Why do you think that is? I think the author is reminding us, as if we, as if we could have forgotten, of what David had done. Of what David had done against Uriah and more grievously against the Lord as he deceived and ultimately killed Uriah. And so I think, as, I think we see here uh, the author's reminding us that this is the reason. This is the, the, the reason for the consequence. This is why. In case we were wondering, why would God do this to this child? The author's reminding us it's because of what happened to Uriah. It's because of what David had done against Uriah and against the Lord. And one thing that I've had to think about this, while preparing this sermon is something that Matt said last week. That God disciplines those whom He loves. That God disciplines those whom He loves. Now, I want to say this. Not every physical affliction is, is, a, is a consequence for sin. And not every sin has a physical consequence that comes with us. But here in this case, David's sin has a literal and physical consequence that, that happened to his child. Right. But, but have to keep that in mind, this idea that God disciplines those whom He loves. Because if we forget that, then we might begin to question God here. We might wonder, what is God doing? How, why is He doing this? Uh, but again, the goal of this, just like in my Baptist history class, the, the, the goal of this is not just punishment. The goal is not just to hurt David. The goal is not to spite David. The goal is restoration. The goal is to draw David back to himself. And this extreme sin or sins that David's committed might require 
a more extreme drawing back, a more extreme consequence. Think about what David had done. Adultery, deception, and, and murder. So do you think that David was near to God during that time? Do you think David was close to God during that? No, I, I think it would have been impossible for David to have been close to God and do such things. And so, so God isn't being spiteful here. He's being intentional to draw David back. And what is David's response? Verse 15, we hear the child becomes sick. The, the child becomes sick. And then verse 16, David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. David seeks God. The response to the discipline, the response to this consequence from his sin was that he further sought God. He could have turned his back on God. He could have said, I don't want to worship a God who is going to do this to me. But instead he sees what God is doing. He sees God's grace even in this. And he responds rightly. He seeks God. David draws near to God. He fasts and he prays for the child. And he refused to be comforted. His servants tried to pick him up and dust him off, but he refuses. He will not get off the ground. He will not eat while he's petitioning God on behalf of his child. I mean, think about what you would do for your child, how far you would go. This is what David is doing for his. He's, he is completely refusing to be comforted, refusing any need that he has so that he can spend all of his time, all of his energy praying for his child. And in verse 18, we hear the, the bad news. We hear... On the seventh day, the child died. What God had declared through Nathan has come to pass. And his servants were even afraid to tell him. They say something like this. They say, if he was that distraught while the child was alive, can you imagine what he's going to be like when we tell him he's dead? They're afraid to tell him. They say he might hurt himself. And David is no dummy. He sees them whispering. He sees them talking. And he says, very simply, he asks, is the child dead. And they respond simply, he is dead. And David's reaction blew them away. Totally opposite of how we would react or how we probably think David should react. And it's definitely opposite to how the servants were expecting. He stands up from the ground. He washes himself. He worships the Lord. And finally he eats. This confuses his servants. They're perplexed at this. And look at verse 21. Look there. They kind of ask boldly, something that I would think a servant would be afraid to ask a king. They say, what is this thing you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. And David's response here, he, it's pretty incredible. Look there, he says, verse 22. Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? He says, but now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. So that question there. Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? That's a huge question. And you see, if you're like me, and you may have thought this already, if you're like me, you're wondering, you're kind of taking the, the servant's question one step further. If God already told you your child was going to die, what's the point in, in praying and fasting at all? Why would you do that? You knew God. God already declared this to happen. What were you going to do? But David had hopes that God would, that God's word would not be the last on the matter. That it would be something similar to what he would have been familiar with of the, of the Israelite story. Whenever God told Moses, I'm going to wipe them out. 
And then God said, I'm, I'm going to destroy Aaron. This is shortly after the golden calf incident. And God says, I'm going to destroy them. And Moses pleads for them. And God changes his mind. He even says that he was so angry with Aaron that he wanted to destroy him. But Moses prays for Aaron. Moses interceded for Aaron. And the Lord listened to him. So David's attempting the same here. He's attempting to change the mind of God. He's pleading with the Lord to spare the child despite his already having declared his death. You see, I don't find this to be stubborn. I don't think David's being ignorant to God's word. I think David has a big understanding of God's grace. God says the child shall die. David says, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious. While of course we know the answer is no, we see how David views his God. David views God as a God full of grace. Dale Ralph Davis uh, tells this, this story when he's talking about this, um, this passage about, an, uh, about Alexander the Great. And it's a story about an impoverished philosopher who came to him for financial help. He came and he, he needed money. And so, of course, the Alexander says, take what you need. He says, go to my treasure and, and take however much you want. And so you would think, and probably what we would do is you take a modest amount. You don't want to upset the king. You don't want to be, you don't want to overstep. So you want to take a modest amount, maybe enough to, to pay off your house, maybe enough to buy some food for your family. But this philosopher, he goes to the treasurer and he says, in the name of Alexander, I want 10,000 pounds. Now I don't know exactly how much that is today, but it's a lot. It's so much that the treasurer refused to give it. He had a note from Alexander saying, I can take however much I want. And the treasurer refused to give it. And he takes it to Alexander. He says, this is unreasonable. And Alexander responded in this way. He said, let the money be instantly paid. I am delighted with this philosopher's way of thinking. He has done me singular honor by the largeness of his request. He shows the high idea he has conceived, both of my superior wealth and my royal munificence. I think David's acting similarly here. He's asking God for, for a huge amount of grace, for a large request and he's showing us how much grace he knows God is capable of giving. He shows us how big God is. He says, you've already, you've already given me more than I deserve. You've put this sin away from me. But I'm asking you now for more. I'm asking you for more to, to, to save this child. And again, of course, the answer is, is no. God has a, a different plan. But we still see a glimpse of, of David's faith here. We see a glimpse of, of what he sees uh, of God's grace and how large God's grace is. So the first promise we see fulfilled here in this chapter is the death of his child. A promise that David and probably us reading would, would have preferred not being fulfilled. But nonetheless it was and God has a plan. He loves David and he has a plan for David. This is where the second promise comes into play. Uh, the last time I preached from 2 Samuel 7 is where we actually hear this promise. It's when God's given this covenant to David. Um, so if you would flip back just a couple pages, probably uh, chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. I want you to hear the promise that we're going to see fulfilled. Because I want you to understand the significance of it. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Look at verse 12. This is, this is the promise that we're fixing to see fulfilled in this next paragraph. It says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. 
He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Ah, you can flip back now. That's, that's the promise. And I want you to think about this. Think about what's going through David's mind after this great sin and after he lost his child. Uh, do you think that he might have been thinking, man, I've really messed this up. I've broken this covenant. I've, I've ruined this promise for God. I've ruined God's plan for my life. I think he very well could have been thinking that. We're not told that, but he could have been. I mean, that's, that's how we think, right? When we sin or we fall away, we feel like we are ruining our relationship with God. We feel like we're having to start over. We feel like we're messing up God's plan for our life. We feel like we've gone too far. We've had too many chances. Those are some of the things that, that might go through our heads when we sin. So it's possible that David was thinking the same thing. I've had too many chances. I've sinned too, too far for God to restore this to me, for God to really let me be blessed the way He said that I would be. So it's maybe not, but maybe David was thinking this way. Maybe he's thinking that he has impacted this covenant in, in a fatal way. So keep that in mind as we read. Again, I want you to look at verse 24 and 25 with me in, in 2 Samuel 12. It says, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son. And he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him. Those, those words there, and the Lord loved him. Those are crucial. And then again it says, And sent a message by Nathan the prophet. And it says, So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. So you see, David and Bathsheba, they named this child Solomon. And Solomon means something like peace or prosperity in Hebrew. So they're hoping that this child will be different. They're hoping this child will live... But Nathan comes and he gives an additional name from God, Jedidiah. And if you have a little footnote there in your Bible, it'll say Jedidiah means beloved of the Lord. So this child is loved by the Lord. This is the child that God's talking about, talking about in, 1 Samuel, in 2 Samuel 7 when he says, My steadfast love will not depart from him. This is the one. So for David, this child being born... Is, is to him knowing that he is restored to God, restored to a fellowship with God, that he has not broken the covenant so bad that God would, would cancel it, that he has not sinned so far that God would change his plans for David. His birth, Solomon's birth, represents David's restoration of fellowship with God. So that's the second fulfillment, the birth of, of Solomon, the birth of an heir David has many sons, but this child is the one who's going to be the heir of the kingdom. This is the child who will take the throne. This is the child who we see will continue this, this covenant promise from 2 Samuel 7. The third and, and final promise that we see fulfilled may be more subtle, but no less significant for David or for God's purpose or for his plans for David. <clears throat> we see also this, that promise is also in chapter 7. It's the idea that he will have rest from his enemies. Rest from his enemies. Uh, God says to David, you'll have rest from your enemies. In the end of chapter 12, 
we see this victory over his enemy, over his largest enemy at the time. So to kind of summarize this last paragraph, I'm not going to read it all over again, but kind of summarize, you see David's general is, uh, he's, he's basically won this war. He's gotten to the very last, very last city, the city of Rabbah, which is the, the capital, an important city. It's called the City of Waters also. He tells David to come and bring the rest of the army in it and so that David could capture it. See, Joab was being uh, honorable to David here. He's letting David take this credit, let, letting David take this glory and make the last move against the Ammonites. And sure enough, David goes and he takes the city and he's, he's honored greatly. He has this crown put on his head. And then we see here that the promise is being fulfilled. I say being fulfilled and it's kind of partially fulfilled because there will be other wars, but this war is over. David's going to have rest at this time. The, the last part of chapter 12, you'll turn there, the last, verse, the last verse, the last two statements says this, And thus he did to all the cities of the Ammonites. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. The war is over. And you know a war is really over when the people get to go home, right? When you pull your troops out, bring them back home, the fighting is finished. There's no more threat of war. They will get to go home and live in peace. And so a piece of this promise is fulfilled. Again, I say it's a piece because there's going to be further war, even in David's lifetime. Eventually, Israel's going to fall. So there's not, there's not this eternal, literal peace. We see here this, this victory is a glimpse of the rest that they'll have, that we have in, in Christ. It's a glimpse of this uh, fulfillment. And so what are we to make of all this? What are we to make of God's promises and, and the seeing them fulfilled here in 2 Samuel 12. How would we apply this to our own lives? So I think a couple of things we can learn from David in these fulfillment. There's a couple of things here that we can learn. I think first we can learn to have a really big view of God's grace. We can learn to have a really big view of God's grace so that we can come to Him with these huge requests of God's grace. And we can even expect them to be granted. And maybe they won't be, but we can have a big picture of, of God's grace. We see that God was, was more than gracious in this chapter. Even though he kind of refused David's first request, we see he then gives him another son, and he gives him defeat over the Ammonites. So he gave David more than he could ever deserve. And all of that, this is the big part, all of that was despite David's biggest ever moral failure. This, these promises being fulfilled, God working in David's favor, was despite his biggest ever moral failure. So David can teach us something in that. There's some times where I don't think we can, we can put ourselves in David's shoes. You know, I don't think in David and Goliath that, that David's a picture of us. But here, I think we can learn from David that there's no depth that we can go. There's no sin that we can commit. There's no distance that we can run away from God that we won't be forgiven and restored if we repent. And more than that, you, you can't mess up God's plan for your life. You can't thwart God's plan with your sin. You see, God had a plan for David and his family and worked through David's sin in spite of it. You see, David's sin put him in a position that he never should have been in. Never should have been in an, in an adulterous relationship. Never should have had to murder Uriah. His sin put him in a position that he never should have been in. But God used that position to fulfill His promise. So when we look back on our lives and we see how sin 
has impacted our lives. We see that the bad decisions or bad choices put us in places that we shouldn't have been, put us in situations we shouldn't have been, and circumstances that we never should have had to come across. We can think about this. We can remember that, that God is working through even sinful situations to work out His plan for us. God's not authoring this sin. God's not calling us to sin, but God is working through our sin even. Does it mean that it won't have consequences? Because it does. But it means that God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We hear that in 1 John. So let David teach us that we ought to be humble in our opinion of our own ability to fight sin. We learned that last week. But also to be encouraged that when we do fail, that, that God's grace is huge. That God will not forsake us. That He will draw us back to Himself. In a moment we'll have a hymn of invitation. The altar will be opened, and now is the time to respond to God's Word. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You for uh, this, this time we've had to, to read and to hear Your Word, dear God. I pray that You would work through it, uh, that we would, be, um, we would be encouraged, dear God, to see how big Your grace is, dear God, and how You, how you work through um, even our failures, dear God, and we thank you for that, that you don't just abandon us when we fail, that you don't just leave us, uh, but that you, uh, that you still work for us, you still have a plan for us, and you still love us, dear God, and you still show us uh, your mercy and your grace. So thank you for that, dear God. We pray that you would uh, draw us near to yourself uh, and away from sin. I always pray in your gracious and holy name. Amen.